Hi there, I'm Dr. Tom Rawson, and you're listening to Jamilcast. On today's episode, we're going to be hearing about some of the cutting-edge research and global efforts towards fighting one of the world's biggest infectious killers. This is a disease that roughly a quarter of the world's population is estimated to be infected with as we speak. And yet, it's a disease that, depending on where you live in the world, it's either a problem of a bygone era or a daily threat. Tuberculosis. Of all infectious diseases, tuberculosis is still the greatest killer. It thrives on ignorance of the facts. Only if we fight it on a nationwide front can we achieve a lasting control. Our children are not going to get tuberculosis, are they, Daddy? No, indeed, my dear. Tuberculosis, known over the years as consumption, Thysis, or more commonly as just TB, is an infectious disease caused by bacteria that infiltrate the lungs. These bacteria can lie dormant for years, eventually make themselves known through a persistent cough, fever, fatigue and weight loss, ultimately ending in death. Today, we speak to Professor Nimalan Arunaminpathy, the Jamil Institute's TB expert, to learn more about the ongoing battle against one of our oldest pathogens. TB itself has been established in the human population uh, since antiquity. It's, it's really interesting to think that maybe around a quarter of the world's population is actually infected with TB. It's a huge amount. The thing is, this is latent TB, and this is quite a distinctive uh, part of the TB natural history. So these individuals who are infected with TB, they wouldn't show any outward signs of disease. Most of them will go for their whole lives without ever knowing that they have TB infection. Now, a small proportion of those individuals, unfortunately, will then go on to develop what we call the active form of disease. And this is the dangerous form of TB because it is the active form of TB that people die from. In the absence of treatment, roughly around 50% of people will die. But the good news is that this is a disease that is treatable with drugs, with maybe six to nine months of cost-effective treatment. So it's not like HIV, for example, where you have to be on treatment for the rest of your life. The vast majority of TB cases can be curable with uh, just a few months of treatment. So the global distribution of TB is quite interesting. In uh, the 19th and 20th centuries, what we saw was in Western Europe, in countries that were undergoing rapid economic development, we saw TB burden coming down dramatically. And this was really testament to the fact that poverty is such a strong determinant of TB. So as people became healthier, as living conditions became better, then TB burden came down dramatically over time. And so nowadays in high-income settings, many people would be surprised that TB is still a problem, but it is. And nowadays TB is a problem, of course, in low- and middle-income countries. Many countries in Southeast Asia, India, the country where I do a lot of my work, Sub-Saharan Africa, where HIV is a big problem, is a major driver of TB. Countries of the former Soviet Union, Central Asia, where drug resistance is a major problem. In all of these countries, economic development is a major factor. Now, naturally, one might say, well, maybe the solution to the global TB problem is economic development, which is certainly true. But economic development is going to take many years. Reaching more cases of TB with the treatments that we have today could be done now. TB treatment options are rapidly innovating. Medicines for fighting TB disease involve a six-month-long course of daily drug cocktails, a tricky program to maintain. But pharmaceutical innovation sees that regimen getting simpler over time. 
resistant strains used to require expensive injectable drugs with traumatic side effects like hearing loss. But new developments continue to make treatment cheaper, simpler, and safer. But there's a problem. Remember, TB is a disease that hides latent for often years. Early modelling work suggested that simply treating the symptomatic cases would not be enough to see levels of TB reduced to meet our global health targets. So the NTB strategy was launched by WHO, and this was basically setting targets for reductions of TB burden over the next few decades. So for example, the NTB targets call for a reduction by 80% TB incidence by 2030, and 90% reduction of TB deaths by that time as well. And they're extremely ambitious goals, but they're necessarily ambitious because before the NTB goals were released, what we were seeing was that global TB burden was declining, but only very slowly. It was happening at about 2 to 3% per year. And so the effect that the NTB goals have had is really to inject a new sense of urgency, because we simply can't continue with these slow declines of, of TB burden globally. So we have these really ambitious targets for 2030, 35. How are we doing against those targets so far? We're eight years in from when they started. How do you think we're doing? The short answer is not well. There are some countries that have made good progress against these targets. But unfortunately, the countries with the largest TB epidemics have faced real challenges. And unfortunately, the COVID pandemic has set TB programs back dramatically. Previously, we'd been seeing declines. Now we're seeing increases in TB incidence and mortality because of the disruptions to TB programs. Every country reports TB to WHO, numbers of TB cases that they have diagnosed and put on treatment. And unfortunately, in 2020, soon after lockdowns were instated in response to COVID, these numbers fell off a cliff. Uh, at a global level, notifications dropped by 18% in one year alone. For some countries, they saw severe disruptions. The clear thing that was happening was that because of lockdown restrictions, because of stressed healthcare systems, because of healthcare resources being diverted to COVID, TB services were being disrupted. And so uh, patients with TB who once might have had access to diagnosis and treatment now were going undiagnosed. And so now for the first time, we're seeing an increase in TB incidence because of this increase in undiagnosed, untreated TB. Undiagnosed is the key word here. Unlike other respiratory diseases like flu or COVID-19, TB is a slow disease. Whereas COVID has an incubation period of a few days, followed by an infectious period of roughly a week, TB lies hidden under the surface for years, has an infectious period of many months or years, and infectious people can themselves go many months before seeking medical help for the first time. This slow epidemiology is a public health nightmare. It means it can take years to see the impact of new interventions or health policies. We've heard in previous episodes how, with COVID, we were able to see the impact of measures like lockdowns or vaccines in close to real time. With TB, however, it might take years to realise that, say, you've been tackling the disease in the wrong way. Information on the hidden spread of TB is incredibly valuable, and it's NIM's work that helps to uncover this to shine a light on TB incidence. The NTB goals, which we've mentioned so far, this is in terms of incidence and mortality. Incidence being the number of people who developed TB disease in the last year, for example. And unfortunately, it's not really feasible to measure directly incidence 
And we would like to be in a world where countries had good enough vital registration systems that we can track mortality as well. But unfortunately, for many high burden countries, mortality is also not measured directly. And so we need ways of knowing incidence and mortality. And what we do have are notifications. Notifications are cases of TB that are reported to public health authorities and then reported to WHO. And the way to think about it is notifications are the tip of a large iceberg and incidence is the whole iceberg. And the task that we have really is to try and understand how notifications relate to incidence. It turns out that mathematical and statistical techniques can be very useful in understanding this relationship between notifications and incidents. A huge iceberg of disease incidents. And while we were trying to tackle it, the COVID pandemic came along and made things much worse. Mathematical modelling research of the kind done by NIM has been giving countries the tools they need to get their intervention programmes back on track after this immense bump in the road. So my own work in burden estimation has been in the wake of the COVID pandemic. And previously, WHO had been using models where they assumed that TB burden was changing very slowly. And this allows you to use very simple equations. And the benefit of those simple equations is they're very transparent. They're very easy for program managers to understand, for example. But of course, then COVID complicated all of that. After COVID, things are not changing slowly. TB programs were stressed, and so very rapid changes were happening. What was really needed at that point was to have mathematical models that could better capture these very rapid changes that were happening and could better capture the implications of these changes. And so that's really been the subject of my work. Previously, WHO had collected data every year. And during the pandemic, the great development that happened then was that countries started reporting their data not just every year, but every month. What I did was to help develop models of TB transmission that could take account of these changes over time and take account of the available evidence from the countries about the depth and duration of their disruptions, and then incorporate that into a mathematical model of TB transmission that could then tell us what this means in terms of incidence and mortality over time. NIM's work gives countries the ability to see far sooner the impact of their attempts to curb TB incidents. But it doesn't end there. Now that he's developed these sophisticated models, NIM and others work directly with countries to help inform the nature of exactly how they can best go about fighting TB. A core part of my work is working with governments in high burden countries. And these are the very same countries where we are asking them to do great things with their TB programs, but with very tight resources. And so really important questions there are, if I had a certain pot of money, what is going to be the most impactful way of using that money? And so we need to take into account all of the available evidence that the country has for their TB burden, but also evidence for how costly different interventions are and what the most cost-effective approaches are going to be. How do you get the best bang for your buck using the tools that you have at your disposal? Perhaps if we proactively find cases of TB, rather than waiting, if you like, passively in a routine TB services, but go out into the community to find TB, that may be more impactful, for example, than expanding the coverage of preventive therapy, or vice versa, depending on the state of a country's TB epidemic and their existing programmatic activities. One country in particular has been leading the charge in this regard. In India, the government has placed ending TB at the very top of their political priorities. 
Whereas the sustainable development goals for TB aim for 2030, India has shown great ambition in bringing that forward to 2025. This wave of political force brought with it a huge increase in domestic funding. In that context, NIM's work has helped to address, say, how can we best use this money to squash TB as effectively as possible? How can we overhaul our strategies in the face of this new science? Coming from the early 2000s, the DOT strategy was really about thinking about TB as a vertical program, which is you create a TB program, wait for people to come there. And if you look at how things have changed from that view of TB to today, a consistent message is actually that we need to do everything. We need to hit TB everywhere. We need to improve the treatment outcomes amongst the patients you already have. We need to improve the treatment coverage and include patients that you don't already have. And we also need to prevent TB so that we reduce the numbers of patients that will be coming down the line. So we need a combination of all of these. Now, as you might expect, identifying the best strategy is one thing. The biggest challenge then is reacting to new difficulties with implementation as you roll it out. As with any public health policy, you need to make sure that people are able to actually use the facilities, resources and expertise provided. You need to eliminate in real time what we call barriers to access. Sometimes those can be hard to see coming. When we do prevalence surveys and we go out into the community to find TB, there are people who have TB who were symptomatic, they were sick, they were suffering from the disease, but they had never sought care, they'd never gone to see a doctor. The reasons are many, but I think one of the most interesting is that, again, TB is a disease of poverty. There may be, for example, a daily wage laborer who may be symptomatic. And for them, going to see a doctor means taking time off work and means lost income. And so these individuals are going to tolerate their symptoms and tolerate their symptoms until the last possible minute and then only go to see a doctor. There are also other possible reasons. It's very interesting in some urban settings, for example, where air quality is very poor, Everybody is coughing. Cough is one of the classic symptoms of TB, but it can be so nonspecific in settings where you have many other causes for cough. I think the reasons can be quite complex and multiple. But the other interesting thing is, so in many South Asian countries, there is a huge private healthcare sector. They don't necessarily cooperate with the public health authorities. They don't report the TB cases that they handle to the government. And so this can really mean complications in terms of trying to monitor how many people are receiving TB treatment. Most people would rather pay to go and see a private doctor than access free, high-quality TB care from the government. Again, thinking about the daily wage laborer. This daily wage laborer may prefer to pay to, to visit a private doctor out of hours than to visit a government clinic that they might otherwise have to take time off from their work. The cost to them is actually less uh, going to a private doctor. So there's a lot of energy coming through the program. And there's a challenge now in inviting the patients to take up these tools for which they're eligible, take up these medicines from which they would benefit. But I'm, I'm very optimistic, given the amount of energy that's really coming through the program right now, that the patients can be brought along as well. It's only through understanding these um, unexpected factors that we can really understand how better to align these TB services with the patients in need. With such intense pressure to meet these ambitious goals you've heard about, other researchers across the technological and pharmaceutical sectors are presenting brand new advances every year, new tools in the tool belt for NIM and other researchers to consider and factor into their policy support work. 
More recently, one of the interventions that's gaining momentum in India is the use of what we call digital chest X-ray. Now, chest X-ray is one of the ways in which you screen people for TB. So you find people that you should be testing. You should be taking sputum from them and testing them to see whether they have TB. Getting sputum from somebody to test is actually surprisingly hard. They're not just spitting into a cup. You're really asking them to expectorate. Often programs need multiple sputum tests, and these are then sent off to the laboratory. There's some expense involved in the testing of that. Obviously, you can't go around and test everybody, but a chest x-ray helps to determine which people you should test. You, you look for shadows on that chest x-ray. And recently, we're having the development of these new tools, digital chest x-ray, that are then read by artificial intelligence. And those new tools can then help to identify very rapidly the patients who's, uh, who should be tested, that you should be taking sputum from. And what this means is that we now have the possibility of much wider screening in the population. You may, however, have noticed so far a distinct lack of one of the ultimate medical interventions, vaccination. We have even more need nowadays than ever before for a new preventive vaccine. So far, the only licensed vaccine has been the BCG vaccine. But unfortunately, that only protects very young people from the severe form of disease. So TB is not yet a vaccine-preventable disease, and we urgently need a vaccine that allows us to call TB a vaccine-preventable disease. So developing a TB vaccine is hard, scientifically hard. And one of the reasons is that we don't fully understand the immunology. For diseases such as flu, for example, we have a reasonable idea of what we call correlates of protection, which is you should raise these antibodies and you can do these tests and that will tell you that somebody has this level of immunity. And unfortunately, we just don't have that for TB. We don't have that good an understanding of what makes good immunity against TB and therefore what a vaccine should raise. But at the same time, I think some of the recent developments have really raised a lot of hope because now with the advent of these new vaccine technologies, mRNA, viral vector vaccines, and so on, we now have the possibility of expressing antigens of choice. Vaccines are in development, but unfortunately, because of the timelines for the clinical development of these vaccines, there's no real prospect of seeing an effective vaccine being licensed in the coming years. And so one of the biggest challenges would be until we have a vaccine that's licensed and available for use and accessible in LMICs, what are the best approaches for prevention until that point? And perhaps preventive therapy is going to be one of the important tools that we would use. And there's a lot of very careful thinking about how we should implement preventive therapy in the most cost-effective way. All this work certainly keeps Nim busy. Even recording this episode required finding a few days in his packed calendar in between his visits to high TB burden countries. The tremendous impact of Nim's work and the importance of this kind of analysis means that one of Nim's other priorities looking forward is ensuring the training of staff across the countries he works in to start leading this work themselves in the coming years. I started my academic career in mathematics. I did my undergraduate degree in maths, my PhD in applied maths, theoretical physics. I loved the science. I wanted to see more tangible results out of the work that I was doing. I had the good fortune at that time to get involved in a postdoc in highly pathogenic avian influenza and with a fantastic mentor. And I was fortunate to then have a string of fantastic mentors after that. Eventually, one of them opened the door for me to begin work on tuberculosis. Quite often, what we find is that 
in this particular skill set, this is something that is often done by us and our colleagues in Imperial College, other universities in Western Europe and in the US. And yet there are incredibly bright mathematicians, incredibly bright ex-theoretical physicists in countries like India, high burden countries elsewhere, who would make excellent candidates for doing this kind of work in future. And so I have been working with some young researchers in country in helping them to do their own modeling. I would like very much to continue and broaden this to the point that in future countries would have increasingly their own independent modeling capacity. So of course we would continue collaborating, but in future this becomes a collaboration that could be led more by the country. On a personal level, what this all means to me, I think could be encapsulated by a very recent experience. So I was in India for a TV summit that happened there. And a friend and I during the summit were taking an auto rickshaw drive. And we were talking excitedly about the meeting on the way. And the driver was very interested to hear that we were talking about TB. It turned out he already knew a lot about the disease. And the more we talked, the more we realized that this driver, his wife, had actually been just been diagnosed with TB after having suffered symptoms for almost a year. She had been visiting several doctors, and finally they had diagnosed her with TB. She had only just started treatment. And it turned out that this auto driver and his wife, they also had a daughter who was preparing for these extremely competitive exams. Unfortunately, they'd spent a lot of money, obviously, on his wife's care. They'd basically uh, used up almost all of their savings. This is not just about his wife's health. This is about uh, their daughter's education as well. That, to me, was a real reminder of why we're doing what we're doing. Because as epidemiologists, we talk about large numbers, 10.6 million cases, 1.6 million deaths globally. And yet every single one of those cases has a story. You often hear that TB is a disease of poverty. But this is a sense in which TB also can drive poverty. And by reducing TB burden, by preventing people from getting active disease, there's also a huge amount of potential in a population as well, something that we shouldn't lose sight of in the global TB response. The World Health Organization releases an annual report on global TB efforts. You can find up-to-date information on how we're doing in the fight against TB in these reports, hosted on the WHO website. After thousands of years, perhaps ending TB is finally just around the corner. This has been Jamil Cast, and I've been Tom Rawson. <laughs>